Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Genetics is the study of genes and heredity. Genetics tries to identify which traits are inherited and explain how these traits are passed from generation to generation. My guest today is Sharon Terry. Chief Executive Officer of the Genetic Alliance. Sharon will talk about genetic factors and genetic disorders and why each of these may influence health promotion, disease prevention, and even human life longevity. She'll also talk about the Genetic Alliance, a network of organizations working together to advance genetic research and engage individuals, families, and communities to transform health. So welcome, Sharon, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for having me. It's just such a pleasure. This is such an uh, uh, exciting topic, and lots of folks don't know very much about it. There's so many components. So let's start with just some basics, Sharon. Explain to us, I mentioned about the study of genes and heredity, Explain to us, what is a gene and how do genes work? So genes are basically our building blocks. They are the foundational elements of who we are and how our bodies work. We have somewhere near 20,000 genes, and they're spelled with only four letters. And those letters make up the genes that then allow us to have proteins synthesized and all sorts of other things that create the uh, various parts of our bodies and actually of all creatures um, and, and, uh, and animals and plants and so on, um, allowing us to fully function and have all the different parts of our systems work, including organs and blood vessels. They give the messages, the information to our bodies uh, when we are conceived and, and when we are beginning to build the, the kind of body we will have going forward. That information is very important uh, to our health and to diseases that we might get in the future. And so explain to us, where do humans get their genes? And and as part of that question, what is the relationship between genes and heredity? How do these work together? Yeah, super question. So we inherit from our mother and father a set of genes from each of them that then give us this information that I was just talking about. So these genes are the basic physical and functional unit of heredity. They're made up of something called DNA. And when we have the egg and the sperm come together, 
this DNA uh, comes together in such a way as to give it, us instructions about how our bodies will make proteins. And so if, for example, certain DNA comes from our mother and she has blue eyes and some other DNA comes from our father and he has brown eyes, um, we will probably have brown eyes because the brown from our father is something called dominant. In all cases, each person inherits two copies of a gene one from each parent. And so the information from each of those genes will determine certain aspects of our physical makeup and uh, how we might progress toward health or disease. Sharon, I, I wanted to ask you if there's different types of genetic traits. You mentioned earlier about brown eyes, blue eyes. Is this a trait or is a genetic trait even something broader? Help us understand this. We're kind of still having a glossary of terms here. Sure. Good question. So yes, we do have traits and traits is not essentially a scientific term, but an easy way for us to talk about this. And so for example, I gave the example of eyes. It might be hair color or freckles, maybe my height, um, and, and certainly other things associated with diseases. And these traits are passed from you, from your parents to you and from you to your children, if you have any. Um, and these traits are the ones that are encoded in our genetics and encoded in our DNA. Um, they're very complicated. So I did use the example of blue and brown eyes, but there's actually many genes that determine that. And it's not so simple in many cases that if your father or mother has this or that, you will have that. And we all know that by looking at our parents and then ourselves and any siblings we have, that in fact, we do look different. We probably behave differently. We certainly have a different progression of health and disease. And that's because genes are, don't make up 100% of what happens to us. Environment has a lot to do with that as well. So having said that, then explain to us what determines the types of genes that each human does inherit? I mean, you just mentioned some more things like freckles, or I was thinking maybe being left-handed or right-handed. And how, how do those, those genes then uh, from the mom and the dad get passed on to the, the offspring? And, and how is that determined? So each of us has 21 chromosomes, and each of those um, chromosomes carry the genes, and we have two copies of them. So when we have a child, each egg has one set of those, and the sperm has one set of those, and those come together to make a complete set, two copies for the child. And it's sort of the luck of the draw, which of the genes are in the set that go to the child. So the set I inherit from my mother and the set I inherit from my father is a mixture of the ones that they have available to give me. And then when those genes come together, they combine in a different way as well. So how I get them is because I get one set of genes from my mother and one from my father, creating a new organism, me, uh, with a different combination of those genes. Wow. That is so complex. I mean, you, as you say, it is really the luck of the draw in terms of how uh, how each human being emerges. Yes. So you've talked about genes, and 
Help us now kind of look at this whole area that you are very much involved with, the genetics. Explain, start by explaining to us what is the definition of genetics? Good question. So genetics is the study of these genes or the field that discusses these genes. It's placed in a larger context, though, something called genomics that some people may have heard of by now because of the uh, phrase whole genome sequencing, which became popular when the whole genome was sequenced. We didn't know what all these letters were. So if we think about this like a book, a very large book, we're looking at 20,000 genes and then lots of other information around each of those genes to make up our whole genome. So our book is maybe a thousand page book. Um, it's made up of only four letters all the way through ATCG, and those letters are spelling genes, and the information between uh, the genes is also in this book. And so we know different parts of the book because we've studied it. Um, this whole genome, our whole, all the information about our genes and all the information around it um, is what makes up um, us and how we function. And we know a lot about it, but we don't know everything about it yet. And so while the whole genome was first sequenced in the um, in 1999, 2000, um, we are only starting to learn what does each part of the whole genome do. In the genome, as I said, there are 20,000 genes, which only make, or maybe 25,000, there's still actually not a complete count. Um, that makes up uh, only 2% of our genome. So 98% of our genome is made up of other things that are informing those genes about how they will do the work they will do. And we may be talking a little bit more later about genomics, which is a, a part of that. And uh, so I want to get back to that. But but let's just uh, stay with genetics right now, because the part about genetics and its relationship with a, a person's health, I think, is really what we're eager to hear you talk about. And so explain to us, how does genetics actually impact a person's health? So genetics are important and our genes are important with regard to our health and so is our environment. And by environment, I mean everything from the place we live, certainly, as well as how much we eat or don't eat and what we eat and how much exercise we get. The information from the genes sometimes is very straightforward about health and disease. So in other words, we might inherit from our parents a gene that causes disease. So for example, Tay-Sachs, sickle cell, um, certain kinds of anemias, cystic fibrosis. These are all diseases that probably people have heard about. Um, hemochromatosis is another common one. Those are inherited directly from the parent through the genes. And so in other words, a person might give their child a gene with a mutation in it that causes a disease. An example of that is a very personal one to me. Um, I have two genes called ABCC6, just like every other living, um, uh, both plant or animal, and I have a mutation in one of mine. My father's children, my children's father has a mutation in one of his. When we conceived our two children, we have only two children, and when we conceived them, each time we each gave the mutated gene, the gene that has a problem in it, a mutation, a difference, a variant, 
And each time our children inherited, both of them, that gene with the mutation in it. My good copy was not given to my children, and my husband's good copy was not given to my children. And so they wound up with two copies of a mutation in a gene called ABCC6. This causes a rare hereditary disease called pseudoxanthoma elasticum. And both my kids have that d- disease because they inherited it from my husband and I. And what you're describing then, Sharon, is, is that the person's genes can determine health outcomes. And in, in you talked about a particular disease. Can the genes also, uh, the right genes, uh, sort of perpetuate good health as well, as well as uh, what you described in terms of some sort of a, a condition? Yes, we believe so. So the example I gave is a pretty straightforward one where through inheritance, a person might get a genetic disease. In other cases, either the gene is conveying some risk. So you might see heart disease run in a family and that disease is not a given. So the person doesn't necessarily absolutely get the disease just because the mother or the father had heart disease. In some cases, you're right that, in fact, some propensity toward health could also be conveyed. And we don't quite understand all that as easily because that certainly has many more environmental factors. But we can imagine that, for example, there are people we're seeing who seem not to get certain conditions. For example, lung cancer, even though they smoke a lot, or um, certain other conditions, even though they don't do exercise or eat well. um, And those may be protected for Uh, by the genes themselves. And so the genes themselves could also pass on some superpowers, let's say, to keep people healthy. We also see a really interesting thing that is uh, certainly interesting to us seniors, and that is that some people seem to be living longer, a certain subset of the population, even longer than most of us are. Um, and, And what we're finding is that there may be genes associated with longevity. So there are some studies that are showing that individuals who inherit certain sets of genes live into their hundreds. And so uh, there are scientists now working on what what actually is conveying that kind of longevity. I guess then, based on all of the studies that you have seen in terms of with your colleagues and this, is there any uh, conclusion yet as to whether uh, the impact on health outcomes and disease susceptibility is is related to genes or lifestyle, or has a conclusion not really been uh, come to yet? I think the conclusion is that we know that both genes and our lifestyle contribute to our health and to our disease. So I think we're very clear that certain genes contribute to disease, that's for sure. And we see that, again, in some families quite clearly. And we also know that it makes a big difference when we study, for example, families where the genetics of the children is pretty similar. We see that as those individuals grow up and become adults and become older adults, the variation in those siblings is quite a lot, even if their genetics is very similar how they live, how they eat, how they exercise makes a very big difference to what diseases we will get. I thank you in terms of your mentioning about longevity and 
to expand a little bit, as you said, genetics is affecting human aging. Uh, again, because we talked a little bit about lifestyle, uh, are you and your colleagues seeing that, because people are living longer, as you said, into their hundreds, that certainly has evolved. My goodness, when my parents were 76 when they passed away, is is there something that's that's changing? Is it environment? Is it lifestyle? Is it we're getting better genes? What would you tell us about this this idea of longevity? Yeah, great question. So our gene pool's pretty consistent, although it does change over time. As I said, um, we are we carry again all these genes that um, are very similar to lots and lots of other animals uh, and plants. What we're seeing is a combination of certainly things like advances in medicine. We all know that, especially those of us who are older, the advent of penicillin, the eradication of polio, those things had an enormous effect on longevity. Uh, I read recently that the COVID pandemic is, in fact, decreasing longevity by 10 years in some populations. So we see that environment and uh, overarching infectious disease, et cetera, has a lot to do. Better nutrition has a lot to do with longevity. But there is a role that genes play. And the role that genes play is one that we're still uh, elucidating, we're still figuring out. We know that longer lifespan tends to run in certain families. And certainly, um, I'm sure some of your listeners have family members who are living again into their 80s, 90s, 100s. Um, And while some of that is just normal in the sense that we've extended longevity overall for humans, uh, some of it is determined by genes. And so, looking at people that we're maybe calling supercentarians, so people who live past 100, um, they may have some propensity toward longevity. When we study these things, we often use other animals. So for example, mice. And so we're looking at those very genes in mice and seeing if the mice live longer uh, and then studying those same genes in humans that seem to be living past 100. Sharon, you mentioned also about your uh, your children having a genetic disease. Help us understand about common genetic diseases. I would I would allude to your family situation. Is that a common genetic disease, or are there other kinds of uh, diseases that are more defined as uh, common genetic diseases? Help us more understand what you see and and. And, and what your family situation, how that fit into the overall genetic disease category? Sure. So the disease that my kids have, pseudoxanthoma elasticum, and we like to say PXE means never having to say pseudoxanthoma elasticum. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful. <laughs> It is, yes. When the kids were were diagnosed, they were five and seven, and they found a spider and said, this is a pseudoxanthoma elasticum. (laughs) (laughs) It was Latin, so they thought it worked. So, so in fact, my children's disease, and they're now adults, are is very rare. Um, it's one in a hundred thousand people. So no one basically has heard of it. There are at least seven thousand of these very rare diseases, and more be, being discovered every day as we sequence more children, more babies. We're finding more diseases, or at least more explanation for disease that we've seen. There are a lot of common conditions that have a genetic component. So a slightly different way of saying this, in the case of my kids' disease and these other things I've mentioned like Tay-Sachs, sickle cell, 
um, uh, certain kinds of anemias, uh, certain kinds of cancers. They are very genetic in the sense that the genes are really driving it, and there's very little, and in some cases, nothing you can do about um, about changing that. So, for example, Woody Guthrie had um, Huntington's disease, which is passed from the parents to the child, parent to the child, and there's nothing you can do about that. You're going to have that disease. But lots of other diseases, and probably of more interest to all of us, are mitigated or, or impacted by genetics. So, in other words, we all know somebody who's had heart disease, cancer, arthritis, typical um, type 2 diabetes, um, all very common conditions. And they have a genetic component. And in some cases, we're pretty aware of and know how to understand that genetic component. So in the case, for example, of certain cancers, we know that if someone has a pancreatic cancer and a certain gene is involved, then we might even know what treatment to give that person uh, something called personalized medicine based on that gene, that mutation. But in other cases, it's a constellation of genes. So a person might have arthritis um, and have a certain number of genes involved, and the person living next door has a different set of genes involved. And yes, partly the treatment could be determined by which genes are involved, but the um, Disease itself has a lot of variation, a lot of genes involved, and so makes it less clear about what is the genetic component here, what's the lifestyle component, what things are affecting whether or not a treatment works when I give it to you. Uh, we've all probably also experienced with a friend saying, you know, this really works well for my arthritis or this works well for um, my whatever other condition you want to name. Um, and the, the person saying it doesn't work at all for me. And that's because our genetic makeups are different. And so our experience of the disease is going to be different and the treatments that work will be different. Well, you are providing a nice segue into what I think a lot of listeners are probably interested in, and I'm eager to hear from you as well, and that's the whole topic of testing. And uh, based on what you've talked about in terms of families, as well as and people wondering whether or not they might have a genetic disease or could be, could inherit a genetic disease. So let's just start talking about testing. Can persons be tested to learn if they have a genetic disease? And and if so, are there different types of genetic tests? Yes, this is a very big field, genetic testing. So as soon as the human genome was finished being sequenced by Dr. Francis Collins at the National Institutes of Health and all his colleagues around the world, genetic testing became possible. And certainly at first, genetic testing was available for very specific conditions that we could understand quickly. I found the gene for my kid's disease in 1999. Um, there were other genes that were discovered in the years prior to that and after that. So one by one, these 20,000 genes, 25,000, 35,000, whatever there are, could be tested for. What's happening now is we can actually test all of the genes, and that's called whole exome screening, or all of the genome, the whole genome, and that's called whole genome screening. The first whole genome cost a billion dollars and took 10 years. 
you can do a whole genome screen in certain places like Radies Children's Hospital in San Diego for somewhere around $1,000 and take 24 hours. Much, much quicker and much more interesting in the sense of getting back a lot of information. However, right now we don't understand what all of that means. Um, so people could get whole genome sequencing done, um, but they won't understand what all the information in it in it uh, provides. There are quite a number of genetic tests available now. They are everything from testing a specific tumor in a cancer to actually testing for rare diseases as well. And it's not common to be tested uh, overall for the whole genome, but it's certainly common to be tested now in most cancers and in certainly all rare diseases. And so these tests are much more widely available than they were even just a few years ago. Okay, well, we're going to talk more about testing because I've got a number of questions to ask you on that, but we're going to take a short break right now uh, for an important message. First of all, you are we are talking with Sharon Terry, Chief Executive Officer of the Genetic Alliance, and you are listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. We are having a great conversation with Sharon Terry, Chief Executive Officer of the Genetic Alliance. And we just started talking about testing and how it's done, how it used to be. And Sharon gave us some examples of different types of genetic tests. Sharon, I really want to get into what you hear about so often about the pros and the cons of genetic testing. Um, so let's start with that. I mean, people, do they want, sometimes they want to find out because of family history. On the other hand, they don't want to find out. Help us understand what people need to know uh, if they are considering genetic testing. I find it really fascinating to talk about who should be tested and when, in part because it's not just a personal decision, it's a familial decision in a way. So if we start with being tested either for whole exomes or whole genomes, when we are tested, we find out not just about ourselves, but about our parents and our children. And whether or not the family wants to know something is important in addition to whether or not I want to know it. So for example, in the case of these genes called BRCA1 and 2, that are very much related to whether or not somebody will get a certain type of breast cancer, they run in families like all genes and all heredity does. And when I get tested as a woman, perhaps with children for that gene, let's say I did in fact have mutations in the gene, it is possible that I've passed those on to my children. And it's important for them to know whether or not I have because they can take um, some precautions, they can take some preemptive kinds of strategies to help them not get cancer. I myself 
may want to know or not know. My children may want to know or not know. And so we get into a fairly complex situation of who does want to know and who doesn't. In the case of whole genomes and knowing everything about the genome, there's certainly a lot of ethical discussions, particularly around testing, for example, children and what we might want a child to know early on, what we're going to know for our children before they have the right to decide whether or not they want to know it um, and whether or not we want to tell them what we've learned. It's important, I think, for each person to discern what it is they are comfortable with. So in other words, I as I personally, as, as myself, as Sharon Terry, love to know everything. And so I've had my whole genome tested several times. I've looked at all the genes that could be causing disease in the future or risk of disease. Um, I want to know that. I want to be proactive about what steps I can take to maybe not be affected or to be affected less by some of the potential conditions. There are other people I know, even working in the genetics field, who don't want to know. They just feel that that's not information that is as useful as maybe I think it is, and they'd rather not know at this time. And then there are, again, family members, families who decide, no, I really don't want to know that. I want to continue to live the way I'm living now and not think about that that might come in the future and so what I do is, is um, decide not to learn that information. So personal preference certainly being a very important piece since every person is the expert of what they can and cannot handle. And so I don't believe personally any blanket sort of decisions should be made. However, I also do believe that years from now, we'll find these discussions odd in the sense that just like knowing our cholesterol level, we'll believe that knowing a lot about our genetics is important. Well, one final question that I had, Sharon, uh, does insurance cover the costs of, of these, uh, these genetic tests? I was just wondering, you mentioned before about expense and that, and I just, if people were interested, are they paying for it themselves or what would you tell us? Insurance is paying for these tests in some cases. Uh, certainly in uh, cases where, uh, for example, breast cancer is running in a family, then testing the women in the family for BRCA1 and 2 mutations is done. A very interesting area is the area of whole genome sequencing. As I said, the cost has come down greatly, and so has the time to do it. And we have babies languishing in the NICU and PICUs, um, places where um, these children uh, have diseases and we don't know what they are. And in fact, Medicare, Medicaid, and the ins private insurers only cover that testing in some of the states. And so we have a bill in Congress right now, in fact, uh, asking that the Congress pass a bill allowing Medicare, Medicaid to pay for testing for children, and more than half the children in the United States are born under those programs, uh, to allow whole genome sequencing when these children are very sick. What we find is that 50% of them are then diagnosed or more with a disease and can be treated. In the case of uh, cancers, arthritis, uh, other conditions, diabetes, we do see more and more insurance companies paying for the testing because what the insurance companies have learned is what we've learned, and that is you can get to treatments much quicker and be more targeted in those treatments and therefore actually spend less money in the overall health care of an individual. Sharon, would you go so far as to say that a, a genetic test can predict a person's future? 
What would you tell us? I would say a genetic test doesn't predict our future. In certain very rare cases, the case of Huntington's disease that I mentioned earlier, it does predict. We know that a person will get the disease. We know probably around what age they will get it. But in most uh, instances, even having uh, either the gene that causes the condition or the genes that predispose us to conditions, give us a risk, are not our destiny, that are in fact how we uh, manage our own lifestyle what environments we live in, what other stressors we have are really important. And so this is a package. It's not a one-size-fits-all, and it's certainly not a destiny in the sense of it being written that we will or will not progress in a certain way toward a disease. Okay, well, that's that's very helpful, and I'm sure encouraging for, for our listeners. I wanted to get back to the old glossary of terms here about the difference between genetics and genomics. Is it genomics or genomics? Genomics. Some people do say genomics, though, so either is fine. (laughs) Okay, well, help us kind of understand, because I just wanted to get into genomic testing. And so uh, maybe you could just explain to us what the difference is between genetics and and genomics, and and then talk about the, the testing there. Sure. So genetics and genomics both play roles in health and disease. Genetics refers to the study of genes. So these individual genes that are passed down and are uh, uh, involved in certain traits or conditions from one generation to another. Genomics is the study of all the genes, the whole genome. So back to my description of the book, Uh, We might have a 1,000 pages, and in those 1,000 pages, we might have 20, 25,000 special sections, and those are the genes. All the whole big wraparound is called the genome. Okay, and is the testing that's done in that, are, are those the same kind of tests that's done in genetic testing? So... Fundamentally, yes, in the sense that just like an alphabet makes up uh, the whole book and also makes up the chapter titles and et cetera, um, we are, what we're looking at when we test the gene is we're looking at these, these uh, pieces of DNA called ATCG, these four letters. And when we test the genome, we're also looking at those letters, but we're also looking at some other things that are in combination with the genes, the, the kind of wraparounds, the genes. So, The tests um, range from very simple tests where they're looking for, back to my example of BRCA1 and 2, looking for a very small number of variations in those genes, just those two genes, maybe just one of those genes if I know that the parent has a mutation in one gene. In the case of my kids, one gene. But back to the more complex conditions or times that we just don't know what's happening for that sick kid in the NICU, um, we look at the whole genome if we can, because it's going to give us much more information. One thing that I noticed when I uh, went on the website or looked, visited the website, and, and we want to talk a little bit about the Genetic Alliance in just a moment, but help us understand the difference between research versus clinical testing. Uh, what is the value of each? Yeah, that's a great question. So almost all, I would say all tests arise in a research environment. So probably an academic institution has studied something or other and come up with a test for a gene. That's called a research test. 
In the United States and lots of other countries, we have what are called regulatory agencies, and some of these we've heard of a lot, like the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. We know that name because they, in fact, are the ones that have approved the the tests for COVID, for example, and the treatments. And probably that's a good example of a, of a test that has gone through approval. And we know that it came out of either a company or a university. It was a research test and then went to a place like the FDA in the U.S. or the European Medicines Agency in the EU. Um, and that agency then approved the test and it was called clinical after that. In general, insurance companies do not pay for research tests. In general, we don't consider them uh, to be uh, foolproof in the sense of lots of other kinds of testing that we call clinical. And so what we're looking for when we are getting a genetic test in a, in a clinical setting is whether or not that test has clinical approval. And the difference is that we've had a lot of time to study lots of people about that particular test, and so we know that it works. Um, In the case of certain diseases, though, we're still using research testing because it's giving us enough information uh, in cases where people are in dire straits, they're they're dying, um, or there's really important decisions to be made about their treatment, we're using research tests. But for the most part, uh, we are looking for clinical grade testing, just meaning that it's undergone very strict rigor in uh, all the developed world. Well, and that's a good segue into where we are now in the past year with the whole issue of the coronavirus pandemic. And I really am interested to hear what you have to say. Have the researchers who have gone through all of this testing over the past year and developed the the vaccine, has there been any discovery of a relationship between genetics and, and the coronavirus? And if so, what have been the findings? That is a great question. So I don't think we know the answer to whether or not we're seeing certain associations around genetics and coronavirus, but there must be. So we know we've all heard of now this concept of long COVID, long haulers in COVID, people who get COVID and then seem to get a different set of uh, symptoms or um, problems that last much longer than they do for the average person. And we don't know yet how many people that is and or why they're getting it. But what we are thinking is there probably are some underlying genetic makeup. So their genome carries certain mutations in certain genes that are in fact causing other symptoms beyond what we're seeing in the typical um, population. So we don't understand yet the interplay between the COVID uh, virus um, effect, the disease, and individuals who seem to be getting a different kind of COVID. Okay, well, that's very helpful and, and more to come yet. I mean, things are still going on with the variants and this sort of thing. I wanted to spend the rest of the interview talking about the Genetic Alliance. Uh, you are the chief executive officer of the Genetic Alliance. Tell us about the Genetic Alliance. What is the mission? What is the vision? How long has it been in existence? Uh, tell us more about it. 
Yes. So Genetic Alliance was founded in 1986 by a woman named Joan Weiss, uh, who was a social worker who believed that families who were putting together these support groups for genetic diseases were in fact in need of support themselves. So the support groups needed support. And 1986 was before the whole genome was sequenced. So lots of amazing vision on the part of Joan, uh, who is uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful woman who I have had the pleasure of working with over all these years. She um, was the f founding executive director, CEO, and um, about 20-something years ago um, retired. And um, uh, I have had the pleasure of leading Genetic Alliance for quite a long time. Our mission is certainly to support the support groups. So people have heard of the different uh, support groups that are, you know, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation or the Sickle Cell Anemia Foundation and so on, um, and my little foundation for my kids' disease. Uh, but we've broadened our mission over the years to actually be involved in policy. So your question about which tests are regulated and, and approved, we've uh, weighed in with the FDA, with the Congress around how we should be protecting Americans around these uh, various tests. We've weighed in on genetic information non-discrimination. So in other words, we led a fight to have a bill passed that protects all Americans from being discriminated against based on their genome. Um, and then we've also been really interested in how do we empower the ordinary person to get involved in research such that they can start to be able to be part of the solution for their families and for their friends. And so we run some very large projects looking at how do we each contribute very safely and securely with lots of privacy protections, our own health information. The only way we're going to learn about health and disease and what works and doesn't work is if we all share that information. In general, that's hard to do because of privacy concerns, because of the um, different kinds of even software that are used all across uh, the world for collecting health information. And so we've built a very robust system that is very easy to use that allows you to connect all of your electronic health records, bring in any of your concerns about health and disease, and start to understand how it is in fact that you're both living well as well as experiencing uh, certain signs and symptoms and want to find solutions for those. So in a nutshell, what I'm really interested in is how do we empower each person to take charge of their own health and to be part of the solutions that we so desperately need for ourselves and each other. And, and to that point then, Sharon, there's some, uh, again, I found on the website, some terms that were referred to there, and I'd just like to quickly get your feedback. One of them pertains to genetic discrimination. And I, I was wondering in particular it, what that is, and I'd welcome your, your definition of that. And is that something that older adults should be concerned about? Uh, explain to us what that is and, and how it might relate to older adults. Great. As the genome was being sequenced in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, it became very clear that, in fact, 
there were opportunities perhaps for insurance companies and employers to discriminate based on genes. And what we mean by that is, so a parent might have a mutation that causes a certain kind of cancer or um, other debilitating disease, and the employer could hear about that and decide that the employee should be tested. And if in fact they were found to have that gene, then they could be fired um, or uh, certainly treated differently. The insurance company could raise their rates, for example, if they found that a certain cancer ran in a family. And so what we did is we worked for 12 and a half years to pass a law that prevents employers and insurers in the United States from discriminating based on your genes or your genome. And what that means is that they cannot look at a genetic test or a whole genome sequencing uh, result and make a decision about either your employment or whether or not your rates are one thing or another. That law um, was passed in 2008 and has uh, stood the test of time quite well in the sense that uh, there are uh, just about no cases, and when there are, they're easily um, mitigated um, because of the law. And so for seniors, what it would mean is that there's certainly less concern about being tested. Uh, for those of us uh, who are you know, concerned about our children and our grandchildren, in fact, in my opinion, and again, this is my opinion, it would be better to be tested and know so that we could give this information to our families and help their health be better than perhaps ours was. And we don't have to worry about our insurance rates being raised. And if we're still in the employment um, sector, we don't have to worry about being fired based on our genes. And in this context, then, is it important then, I think you mentioned a moment ago about the electronic health information, your health records. Uh, do you also promote and support the fact that not only older adults, but all people should have access to their electronic health information so that they can decide who should get it? Uh, talk more, more about that. Yeah, really great question about our electronic health records, which now are pretty pervasive. I had the pleasure during the Obama administration of being part of a committee that worked to help get that information be more interoperable. If you can imagine, and probably most of us who are this age know, that Visa and MasterCard once upon a time didn't talk to each other. They couldn't be used in the same systems. And consumers forced that interoperability operability. So I can use my Visa card or my MasterCard or American Express or whatever, wherever. Well, now the same thing is starting to become true about my electronic health record. We've all experienced that we can't get the records from one hospital to be brought over to another hospital very easily. And that's detrimental to health, actually, when one doctor can't see information that I might have gotten in from a different hospital. And during the Obama administration, we created interoperability rules, meaning that we actually had to have systems whereby these various um, electronic health records would be able to be used together. And, and a language was created to allow that. So today, we also all have the right to have our electronic health information given to us. And that's a wonderful right that came to us through the, afford, uh, um, the ACA, the, um, the, the law that allowed much more, many more people to have insurance, also allows us 
to get that information and to bring it into um, other environments, other places, to store it ourselves, to bring it to the next hospital or doctor. And so our access to our electronic health record is now a right, which is quite incredible and one that uh, could be quite helpful to us. And I want to make sure that I also ask you, especially right now, because there's so many uh, you're seeing about new uh, research studies, and help us understand about patient research protections. If somebody decides to sign up, because, gee, it sounds like they would be just the right candidate are there certain protections that people should be aware of? And, and I am especially concerned about older adults because so often they are victims of scams. So uh, tell us a little bit more about patient research. Yeah, great question. Patient research, as I said, is really critical. And in fact, I've given a lot of my years to making sure that it is safe for people to participate in research, that they have all the rights and the um, uh, uh conditions that are appropriate and, and helpful to them. So I would say if you are invited to participate in a research study, and I certainly hope that most people will, and that's part of what I really encourage, that you feel free to ask all the questions you want to ask. So things like, how will you protect my information so that it doesn't go anywhere else? I need it to stay just in this study and not to be, for example, put into my clinical record, my healthcare record, because I don't want either incomplete information or misinformation or, again, information that shouldn't be available perhaps to my insurance company to be available. Um, that is the right of every person in research. And fortunately, we have these bodies of actual people who oversee research in the U.S. and abroad that look at, is this research ethical? Is it asking questions that are important to the people it is testing? Is it making sure it's protecting vulnerable populations like the elderly or pregnant women or those who are in prison or children? Um, and are we explaining clearly to the person so that they can do something called informed consent so that my consent would be informed and not just uh, done out of some kind of desperation. And so we have very good oversight in general that makes sure that all of those things um, are in fact um, taken care of so that people could feel safe in participating in research. But I would recommend that you ask those questions uh, as you go through it and that you make sure that you read things like the consent form and, and uh, have the information you need to make a decision. The Genetic Alliance certainly does so many different things. Could you tell us a little bit about how the Genetic Alliance helps family under, families understand what they need to know about genetic testing? We talked a lot about genetic testing, but how does your organization help the families? So we give families, we hope, the information they need to make decisions about whether or not they want to be tested, what kinds of treatments might be available to them. We run a website called diseaseinfosearch.org, and it's just all that diseaseinfosearch.org, one word. And in that, on that website, we have 10,000 diseases and their subtypes in that on that website, we offer information about testing, about clinical trials. Those are the research studies. We offer information about the condition and about support groups for the disease. And Genetic Alliance has always been of the mind that the best 
place you can go for information is the support group for that particular condition. And every condition has a support group these days. Uh, so they, that support group would be able to give you the best information specifically about the genetic tests or potential treatments for your condition uh, that would help you. So you said it's pretty much on the, the website, the Genetic Alliance, where these uh, resources are, Sharon? Yes. Um, and geneticalliance.org is helpful. And then also diseaseinfosearch.org is also very helpful to get straight to the diseases in a big, very large index of all of them. And, and you mentioned also about uh, uh, the various diseases that going to those organizations is, is also a good resource. Any other kind of generic resources that people uh, could learn more just about the whole genetics or genomics? Uh, what, what would you tell us? I would say an excellent resource is the National Institutes of Health and specifically genome.gov. So just the word genome.gov is a site that they run that has uh, very well-written information about genetics and genomics, about genetic testing, about the protections we have as as citizens, um, as uh, Americans. And so that would be a fabulous site uh, that then will lead to lots of other sites that might be interesting to you. All right. Well, I want to thank Sharon Terry, Chief Executive Officer with the Genetic Alliance, for joining me today. And by the way, if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is www.agingmattersonline.com. And at that site, you can find out about all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as the podcasts, which this uh, uh, program will be on, on Apple and Spotify. And you can subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter to receive updates about new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that organization at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.